1668 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I am joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? I'm doing well. We are doing team previews today. We've got an AL Central twofer, Aaron Gleeman on the Twins, followed by Evan Woodbury on the Tigers. But first, I've got to ask you about a few sites from spring training, because there is some extremely Meg stuff going on oh, <laughs> these yeah. days. Spring training is getting weird, weirder than usual. We've talked about a few of the weird occurrences, but one of the weirdest happened just a a few days ago where the Giants played the bottom of the ninth in a game against Cleveland when the Giants were winning the game already. (laughs) And uh, they all just played on, which I think is what big leaguers used to do up until 1880. I think Sam has brought up how in the early days of baseball, it was customary to play out the bottom of the ninth, regardless of who was winning, but not so customary now. And the umpires pieced just in protest, I guess. They're like, (laughs) you guys do whatever. We're going to leave now. I, (laughs) I am so genuinely angry that this is not, available on MLB TV. This was not a game that was broadcast. And like, look, you know, a lot of spring training, it's whatever. You don't, you're not getting, you're not getting much out of it. Like it's good to have baseball on as we've talked about. And there definitely are stats and trends and guys who look like different guys now where it's (laughs) valuable. But in general, like you're not missing anything by missing any one spring training game except Mm -hmm. for this one. Yeah. (laughs) I just want to know. I am curious how contentious the exchange was because if you look at some of Susan Slusser's tweets, and it is going to take me at least an entire season to get used to Susan being on the Giants beat, that (laughs) is neither here nor there. If you look at some of Susan's tweets, it's clear that the the team sort of agreed to this in advance because they had brought some pitchers who they wanted to get work in. And the the real purpose of spring, apart from the tune up for a lot of these guys, is like developmental work. And so So like that part is good, but it also suggests that this was sort of an understood thing. And so I wonder if they came together at home plate and were like, hey, so uh, you know how we said we were going to we were going to keep playing, even though like this game should be over. Well, we meant it. But, Mm -hmm. you know, if you want to go, that's fine. You know, I'm happy to stick around and we'll call our own balls and strikes. Or was it like were the umpires like grumble? Like, no, this is our, our essential function. You are denying us an important part of our professional identity. I'm just, I want to know, and I will never know to my satisfaction. And that makes me angry. Yeah, right. Maybe they thought if we let them play a half inning without us, they'll just want to play without umpires forever. We'll all be out of jobs. And it'll just be Cleveland catcher Bo Taylor calling balls and strikes as he catches them, which is what happened. (laughs) And apparently was reported to have done a good job. There is an interesting bit of trust that is is built into this whole thing, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're you're trying to get your guys work, but you need the other teams, not only participation, but like 
honest participation, right? You need them to to try the way that they ought to so that the the work that those guys are getting in means anything at all. So it's like a very nice little bit of collaboration on the one hand and then yeah. um, strange rupture with the yumps <laughs> on the other. And it would have made for at least 2,000 good baseball words, but now none. Yeah. I'm sorry that you were deprived of content. Yeah, Taylor said that he just told the batters to work with him, and I guess it worked well enough, although I don't think it went perfectly because I was enjoying friend of the show Jesse Thorne's Twitter thread about this as he was live tweeting it, and he said... The Giants in Cleveland agreed to let the Giants bat while they're ahead in the bottom of the ninth. Umpires disagreed and went home. They're playing without umpires. Next tweet, play-by-play guys aren't entirely clear on whether the scoreboard operator or the catcher is calling balls and strikes. It was the catcher. Joey Bart just took a 4-1 pitch for ball five and trotted down to first. (laughs) Giants announcers in full nonsense mode having an extensive discussion about what time they'll go to bed, given that it's daylight savings tomorrow, also considering policy implications of universal daylight savings and... (laughs) Then John Miller said, it's got to be weird for this pitcher. It's not like he's got to hold a lead or a tie. His team already lost. It goes on from there. So, yeah, I wish I had seen this, too. I wasn't listening, but I might go back and just listen to the radio broadcast because it sounds like fun. And this was something that used to happen in early baseball. Early baseball was strange to our modern eyes. But nice that these weird things can come back in spring training every now and then. Yes, I think that it's a nice break from the tedium that can set in with spring ball to have uh, stuff like this go on where you just get to embrace a a little bit of weird. And now we're in the part of the spring training calendar where they're not going to be able to roll innings anymore and more games will go at least seven, um, Mm -hmm. if not nine. And so we are starting to look more and more like real baseball and that's thrilling in its own way given how little real baseball we had last year and how strange that baseball often felt but at the uh, you know you can only really hold on to that broader feeling of of exuberance uh so many spring days in a row before you're like all right and so it is nice to have to have a bit of a bit of oddity ease into it with some whimsy before you get down to business and yeah speaking of strangeness and whimsy there was a 22 pitch plate appearance between Jordan Hicks of the Cardinals and Luis Guillorme of the Mets. And I watched not the uncondensed version with the extremely long breaks between pitches, which I saw Sean Foreman was timing. He had a tweet about just how incredibly long. It was like 11 and a half minutes or something. Oh, oh it sure was. Appearance. It sure was, Ben. It was long. Yeah, <laughs> I just watched the, the rapid fire abridged version where they cut out all the milling about between pitches. But I still enjoyed this just as a long plate appearance appreciator in general. I once did a extremely ill-advised series for Baseball Prospectus about the longest plate appearances of the week where I would watch them and break them down and didn't see any this long because we don't know of any this long, really. This was even longer than the 21-pitch Brandon Belt plate appearance a few years ago, which is the longest on record. So this one, I think what I enjoyed the most was just the sight of the Mets bench who were so into this. I mean, the entire Mets team was on the top step. I've never seen anyone just showing pure joy the way that Pete Alonso was after every successive foul ball. Like there were some fans in the stands, I think, or at least some spectators, although behind the plate, it was all cardboard cutouts. But after every pitch and after every foul, this great cheer went up and it was just the Mets like on the top step, just cheering on Giorme to keep fouling off pitches. So I really enjoyed that aspect of it. 
yeah, the the tension of it just building and building and building and and you're wondering how long it's really going to go and I think that there's just a part of it that feels like a really terrific triumph and so yeah, it was it was great fun to watch. Yeah, I felt for Jordan Hicks though because this was his first outing after Tommy John surgery and rehab and the long layoff and I think this was his first at bat even facing a, a live hitter in a game. And this is a rude introduction to being back in baseball, 22 pitches to not even retire Luis Guillermo because he ended up walking. But (laughs) that's rough. I mean, the good news is that he was still throwing 101 miles per hour. So, you know, I guess he's back. But that's not an easy way to get back into it. And I think this was like maybe the day after they ended the inning rolling regulation. And so he threw enough pitches in this one plate appearance that they could have just ended the inning. After that, I think even when they were rolling innings, I think you still had to finish the at-bat. So they couldn't have ended in the middle of this 22-pitch ordeal, but they could have ended it right after that. So, yeah, I would imagine coming back after all of that time away, you're like, wait, this is the way baseball works? This is not how I remember pitching going. Like, I think plate appearances used to end faster than this. Yeah, it's funny. Like, you you mentioned the velocity, and and these were not these were not bad pitches. (laughs) He was throwing really competitive pitches. It was just also a a really competitive at bat on the other side. Um, But yes, it had to, I imagine they hoped that he would face a couple of different batters rather than getting a couple of different batters worth of pitches in against one guy. But, (laughs) but yeah, it was Alonzo was great. Dominic Smith was just like overjoyed for him when he finally drew the walk. It was, it was, uh, it was great fun. Even if um, it did, go on for for quite a bit yeah and producer dylan told me that in Guillaume's next plate appearance he lined out on the first pitch which is wonderful (laughs) that's great and i saw dylan also pointed me to a tweet by our pal levi weaver who quote tweeted the video of that plate appearance and said this reminds me of a question i've had for years now how many foul balls would it take for a manager to make a mid at bat pitching change? Oh. The number definitely exists, even if managers haven't thought about it ahead of time. And I mean, it depends on the context, obviously. Like if it's the first batter of the game and it's a starting pitcher or something, you're you're not gonna pull someone, I guess, you know, within reason. But there probably is some number, just like the fatigue of it. And maybe just providing a a different look. I mean, we've talked about the potential benefits of making a mid-plate appearance pitching change in the past just for the element of surprise. And also, I think I've seen studies, I think Russell Carlton has shown that with each successive foul ball on a 3-2 count, the batter's outcomes tend to be better just because you're getting more and more looks at the pitcher. It's not even like the times through the order penalty. It's like you're you're not even having a break of an inning or two between plate appearances. You're just seeing everything that pitcher can throw in the same plate appearance. So you get to a certain point and it's like, well, nothing he throws now can surprise me. So maybe it would be better to bring in a fresh arm or just to end this one way or another. I think that Oh, gosh, I wonder if I'm going to overstate my impression of this. I feel like it would be pretty, unless the guy, hmm, there's the fatigue element of this. And obviously, I mean, if a plate appearance went on long enough, I guess you'd start to worry about potential injury. But I wonder how the guy getting pulled would feel. Like the flip side of what we saw in that Mets Cardinals at bat is like, imagine if he finally like, 
gets him looking, right? And right. and finally strikes him out. Imagine how nuts the Cardinals uh, dugout would have gone. And so I think that if you deny sort of the psychic satisfaction of that potential conclusion to the plate appearance, you might you might have like a rebellion on your hands. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, you probably want to finish what you started at that yeah. point. You want to see it through one way or another. So yeah, I can see how you would get invested in a battle like that. So I guess it depends like, you know, if you started a plate appearance like that at 95 pitches or something, right. and you're someone who tends to get pulled at 100, then I would think in this era where managers tend to be quite sensitive to that, if you really did, I mean, if you were at you know 115 or something and the plate appearance is still going, then yeah, maybe you figure this is just not worth it and we'll err on the side of safety here and sorry, and hopefully the pitcher would understand. But yeah, in other contexts, I think you're probably right just from a kind of clubhouse harmony perspective. You don't want to go out there on pitch number 18 and have the guy pull like a Max Scherzer and not give you the ball. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was weird and fun. And the last thing I wanted to mention, sticking with the Mets, Jacob deGrom pitched on Tuesday just a little bit before we recorded, and he looked as dominant as he had in his previous spring training start. And one thing that I don't think we mentioned on our email episode last week when we were talking about whether spring stats would be more or less meaningful this year after the pandemic-shortened season we came down on the side of, well, the, the stats themselves are probably not much more meaningful. There are probably cases where it's more meaningful to see some of these players who we haven't seen for a long time, and maybe something about their bodies or mechanics have changed in a way that would be enlightening to see. But one thing I don't think we really touched on is the fact that there are some more meaningful stats that are available this year in spring training, right, in that you have stat cast data in a number of parks, not all of them, and not all of it is widely accessible, but we are seeing more and more of the stats that we are used to in the regular season, the really granular pitch level, batted ball level stats that are available now, whereas in the past in spring training, there would be like, you know, two parks or something where there was velocity, and that was about it, really. So we are getting an indication of those really talent-sensitive stats these days, and that came in handy when looking at DeGrom because DeGrom, if he's not throwing harder than he did last season, he's throwing at least as hard yep. and it's mid-March. And it continues to amaze that he seemingly just adds a tick or two every single year, which doesn't seem like it should be possible at his age or any age for that matter, but especially not at 32. He averaged 99 with his fastball last season. He seems to be right there again, like he's touched 101, 102. I saw someone tweet that a scout clocked him at. He's, you know, sitting at 99.2 in this spring training start in mid-March and you just kind of have to wonder like does he have even more in him somehow and I don't know how that is possible someone asked him I saw a quote last week I think where they asked him about this and he said I feel like my delivery is better than it was when I first came into the league I think just cleaning that up and my thought process is everything is on time and where I need it to be when I release the baseball so I just feel like cleaning that up and continuing to work on that is kind of why the uptick is there 
And they asked him, is there even more room to add here? And he said, I don't know. I guess we'll find out. (laughs) I honestly don't know. And from the early returns, it seems like if he does add velocity as the season goes on, which is the typical pattern, he might get up to an even higher level, which is kind of incredible. I just, (laughs) the Mets had such a strange offseason and so in such a in a lot of different ways <laughs> yes. some positive some wildly negative and it has caused me to think a lot less about what actual Mets baseball might look like this year than I think I might otherwise have for a team that you know acquired Francisco Lindor and yeah. has the rotation that the Mets have and sort of position the way that they are but I just can't imagine being a hitter in the rest of that division and being like but so now you throw harder <laughs> you're allowed <laughs> yeah. to do that you're allowed to just throw harder than you did because you were already <laughs> pretty good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I also like the the sort of assumed humility of like, I don't know, maybe it'll just keep getting better. <laughs> like, yeah, right. Who, who could say? Yeah, it's it almost scares me. It's like an Icarus situation. It's like, how much higher can he fly here before right. he hurts himself? Like, I don't, you know, 100 seemed to be sufficient, 101, 102. Like, he's been doing all right. I'm almost worried for him if he keeps adding, but it's just amazing. Like, there were multiple articles last year about just how unprecedented it was for someone to add velocity as consistently as he has. And he may be poised to do it again. Like he's throwing sliders harder than he threw his four-seamer Ask, yeah. in his rookie year. I yeah. mean, in his rookie year, he he averaged 94.5 on his four-seamer. Now he's throwing sliders that hard and he's throwing his fastball, you know, at least five miles per hour on average harder than that. And it's really just kind of a, a one-of-a-kind thing. So whatever he is doing, people should try to mimic it or bottle it up and and do it themselves it's just man i i don't know what to make of it i don't know if it has something to do with the fact that he was a late convert to pitching and his arm feels fresher than a typical 32 year old pitchers or maybe he had some mechanical refinements to make later in his career than usual because of the strange start to his career but it's just not usually what you see with pitchers where often when they break into the big leagues they're throwing as hard as they ever will yeah i <laughs> i just don't know how to account for it it is also proof positive of how how wild and just inherently destructive an exercise pitching is that we are looking at this like phenomenal performance and anticipating it getting better but also at the same time quivering in fear that he might go out like oh no the pitching it's so bad for you jacob don't do it (laughs) i know not that there are many pitchers who have thrown in this velocity range but those that have the injury track record is not the best and you don't have to look far if you're a mets fan to find other examples such as noah syndergaard for example So we'll see. And the last thing I just want to mention, just want to shout out a couple pieces, one of which I wrote. I teased last week that I was going to be working on something about moving the mound back, and I've brought that up on the podcast before. It's kind of a hobby horse of mine, so won't get into it at length here, but I will link to it if anyone wants to check this out. This was sort of the deepest dive that I have done on the potential benefits and drawbacks of moving the mound back a couple feet as a way of countering the Jacob deGrams of the world who just keep throwing harder and harder and striking out more and more batters. So if you're interested in that, I think it's an interesting debate. What would the actual effects be? 
I would at the very least like to see it tested somewhere over a full season or even just in a controlled laboratory type setting just to see if we can figure out exactly what the effects would be, though I have some historical precedents in the article that make me think it would be effective, but it's not conclusive. And then the other thing I wanted to mention, Rob Means has been doing an interesting series Mm -hmm. at Baseball Respectus about the times through the order penalty and kind of quantifying exactly what it is and how important it is. And there are various ways that you can look at it. But Rob found that if you do look at pitchers who make it to a third time through the order and you account for the fact that they're facing hitters of different talent, like it can be kind of deceptive when you're looking at basic times through the order stats for various reasons, including the fact that when you embark on the times through the order, you are facing the top of the lineup again, and those guys are good. And so if you just look at that, it it might artificially inflate it. But then if you look at pitchers who got knocked out early in games, then that might seem to deflate it because those pitchers probably weren't having great outings. So anyway, Rob generally concludes that the times through your effect is quite real and quite significant and maybe even more significant than we have thought. But in his most recent piece, he went back and looked at it historically speaking, which is something that I've been curious about. Has this always applied? And my suspicion was that it has just because you can go back to Ted Williams or players even earlier than that who would talk about the benefit of seeing pitchers multiple times in a game. But he looked at the 1969 through 1976 period, which is an era of real workhorses who were taking the ball and going deep into games. And he found that the times through the order penalty seems to have been even more dramatic back then, which is pretty interesting. I will link to the latest piece in the series because one thing I was wondering was, well, is it being exacerbated now? because no one expects you to go deep into games. And so you're just really airing it out early. Mm -hmm. And then if you do get left in longer, maybe you're gassed by that point. So maybe it's a product of the way that pitchers are being used today. But it seems to be the case that, no, this has always just been a reality of baseball before anyone really recognized it or cared because they were just going to let people finish those games even if they did have diminished effectiveness throughout the game. And of course, they did not have giant flame-throwing bullpens back then, so the options were more limited as well. Yeah, gosh, I don't really have anything to add to that apart from the fact that, Ben, this is a weird thing to say, perhaps. First of all, you should have written your article sooner and maybe you would have been able to get it tested this year because we seem to be very open to new rule changes. There's still a chance. The Atlantic League season this year, it might happen. It's on the table. And the other thing I would say is that there's a lot of very good work being done still on the lingering effect that COVID is having on the season. So I don't mean to downplay either the importance of that work or call it a bummer because it, it is very important and a thing that we have to remember. But it is nice that because we're just getting used to and ready for baseball on a more regular schedule that we have all this good research that is about stuff that isn't COVID. So anyway, it's nice Mm -hmm. to have room for multiple things is what I was going to say. Yes, I would agree with that. All right. So we will take a quick break and we'll be back with Aaron Gleeman to talk about the twins, followed by Evan Woodbury to discuss the Tigers. up to unlock the game, but the key lies in some other state. You're in a catch, 22. You'll be damned if you don't undo it. If you ever want to start something new, you're 
All right, it is time to talk about the Minnesota Twins, and as always, we are joined by Aaron Gleeman, who covers the Twins for The Athletic. You also hear him on the Gleeman and the Geek podcast and radio show on KFAN. Aaron, welcome back. Thanks for having me back. Always happy to. So I was just reading Matt Trueblood's preview of the Twins at Baseball Prospectus, and Matt is optimistic about the team, as is Pakoda, but one line struck me here. He wrote, To whatever extent the front office or the fans once dreamed of Byron Buxton, Jose Barrios, Miguel Sano, Jorge Polanco, and Max Kepler forming a championship core, this is the last chance for that to manifest itself. And as Matt notes, the Twins have done a good job of surrounding that potential core with veterans, and there's a whole new crop of prospects on the way that you just wrote about and we will ask you about, but... Do you subscribe to that? Do you think that's the case, that this is the last year for that fivesome to come together and really turn this team into a championship one? Hmm. It's, it's an interesting uh, premise. I think maybe it's the last year for just that core to do it, like without, as you mentioned, another sort of next wave of prospects yeah. adding to that core. But But yeah, I mean, most of those guys are 26, 27, 28. They've become good players, but maybe not superstar players. Or in Buxton's case, he's got all kinds of injury issues that have, have kept him from that. But yeah, I mean, I think it also kind of depends. I mean, have they technically been a championship caliber core the past two years? Or does the fact that they lose in the playoffs uh, <laughs> immediately every year sort of keep people from viewing it that way? So I don't know. Right. It's, it's tricky. I mean, I think they're 90, a 90-something 90 win team. I don't want to give it away because I know mm-hmm. we do that at the end. But uh <laughs> It, I, I think it sort of depends on what your definition of a championship core is. Now, I feel, right. like, I feel like Bill Clinton, like the <laughs> definition of words. Oh, no. <laughs> That's, by the way, oh, great out-of-context quote, Aaron. Way to, way to start the show with that. No, it's true. It, it depends, you know, is a championship core only a championship core if it wins a championship right. or if it makes you good enough to contend for one, and the Twins have already been that. So you could say that they have already passed that test. So, yeah, as you mentioned, some of those players have been productive, but there's still a sense that there's promise that is untapped in a few cases, at least. So is there someone from that group, Buxton, Barrios, Sano, Polanco, Kepler, who you see as still having another gear that they will actually be able to get to? I, I mean, I think Buxton is, I mean, I st- I've stopped doing the breakout articles, <laughs> but if I did this year, he would be on it for like the 42nd year in a row. But yeah, I do feel like it's not so much that he can play better. Like we saw the version we've seen of him. The last two years is an amazing center fielder, a great base dealer, and a 30 homer type of hitter. Mm-hmm. But it's he can take it to the next level by, you know, actually playing 135 games instead of half the season, which he's just had such an inability to do. Like it's it's so strange to view his hype relative to what he's actually turned into because he has sort of lived up to it in the sense that on a per game basis. He's probably like one of the 10 or dozen best players in the American League. It's just we've so infrequently seen that for more than like a month or six weeks at a time. I'm fascinated by the Twins rotation approach. So they they are going to, obviously, we mentioned Burrios. He's coming back. They will um, continue to enjoy the services of Kenta Maeda, who had this wonderful resurgence in a full-time starting role for them last year. I think we'll talk about Michael Pineda in a little bit, but they, you know, they signed Jay Happ. They signed Matt Shoemaker. This has been sort of a trend with them, right, where they have brought on interesting veterans who have 
at times had difficulty staying on the field rather than signing, you know, the the big sort of marquee starter that is available in that offseason. And I, I wonder first, like what you think of that particular approach that they have taken and then what your expectations are for those two new additions to the rotation. I think it's interesting because like I think last offseason they did want to sign. I know they were in the mix for Zach Wheeler or they thought they were. Uh, and then pivoted to Maeda, which obviously worked out even better. This offseason, I think they sort of wanted to re-sign Jake Odorizzi, but he wanted three years until the very end, and then he took a strange two-year deal with the with the Astros. But by that point, they had moved on and signed the two guys you mentioned, Jay Happ and, and Matt Shoemaker. I also think part of it plays into the fact that like this regime, this front office regime, Derek Falvey led, was hired from Cleveland because of their ability to develop pitching or their perceived ability. But in the it that takes years to pay off, sort of. And they're getting somewhat sure. close to the farm system producing some frontline starters potentially. But in the meantime, they've definitely taken the approach, like you mentioned, of can we fill in the blanks here with sort of good veterans on the second half of their career, maybe adjust one or two things with their pitch mix or keep them healthier than they've been. And it's worked well. I don't know that it has the greatest upside. And certainly, like, the fan base here has been shouting about the need for an ace. That's what happens when you lose in the playoffs every year. People just sort of attach themselves to one thing. Even though Maeda was, I mean, he was running up for the Cy Young, but right. it was in a, sh- a shortened season. But Barrios never quite took the next turn to become, a like, a true number one starter. I think he's more of, like, a solid number two. So... Pineda is sort of a weird key for them. I also think, I mean, Jay Happ's been a lot better than probably most people realize just because he's had such a weird career where he's so much better in his 30s than he was in his 20s. I'd like to point out that you have brought up the Twins postseason woes twice, and we have brought it up not even one time so far, (laughs) just in case anyone's keeping score. Yeah, that's a defense mechanism. It's like (laughs) I also make uh, fat jokes about myself just because I feel like if I I do it, it's, uh, you know. But that, yeah, it is... uh, it's a weird PTSD that looms over every every possible move the Twins make. Even every article I write that I'm like, hey, this seems like a sensible move. The first or second comment will inevitably be like, well, this will is this going to allow them to beat the Yankees in the playoffs? It's like, well, <laughs> probably not. Yeah, I saw that you just did an article on what the six thousand day yeah. anniversary of the was a, Twins playoff losing streak. That was a real crowd pleaser. Yeah, just trying to. <laughs> Exercise those demons, at least from your head, I suppose. So, yeah, with Maeda, was that just a case of, well, he actually got a chance to be in the starting rotation and they left him alone to do that and he excelled in that role, a role that he had wanted to be in previously? Or was it a case of the Twins player development prowess, perhaps trumping even the Dodgers vaunted player development prowess because the Twins just recently named Maeda their opening day starter for this year? So, they are hoping for or expecting more of the same. So what was it exactly that enabled him to excel to the degree that he did? It was a little of both. Like he was definitely, I mean, he didn't dislike his time in LA, but I think by the end it seemed like he was, didn't love the fact that they shifted him to the bullpen for the playoffs basically every year. And when the twins acquire him last, uh, I guess, February, the first thing they said was you're a full-time starter for us. Don't worry about that. And I think that gave him a little peace of mind, but it was also, I mean, he was really good for the Dodgers, but I, I think the Twins R&D guys or their pitching coach, Wes Johnson, sort of felt like, especially with his slider, this is a better pitch than even he's sort of giving himself credit for, and it can be effective against righties and lefties because 
he's always been great against righties. What changed last year was he shut down lefties too. And I think that was them just sort of tinkering with the pitch mix a little, convincing him to throw his slider more against lefties as an actual weapon. And now this this spring he's tinkering with trying to add a slow curveball to the mix. And I mean, he's just, he's a really good pitcher, even if the stuff isn't overwhelming at any point. And I think they identified him. I mean, they gave up a lot to get him. Bruce Dargretero was going to be a really good reliever probably for a long time, but the, the payoff of that trade is looking pretty great so far. Maybe we can just stick on the rotation and close this out with Pineda for now. So in a year that everyone had sort of a strange season, he had a particularly odd 2020 coming back from the suspension that carried over from the prior year, but pitched well in the limited innings that he he pitched last year. I'm kind of curious what the team's really expecting from him in 2021, given just how infrequently he's pitched in, in a competitive setting over the last 18 months. Yeah, it's definitely – and I mean, honestly, for his whole career, he he hasn't exactly piled up innings. So right, I think, there's been stop and start the whole time. Yeah, exactly. And I think he's probably the main candidate to skip a start here or there, be limited in terms of going five or six innings most outings. I mean, he physically appears to be someone who can handle a massive workload just because he's a giant human being. But I think – it's easy to forget that, you know, back when he was a prospect that that Meg was dreaming about with the with the Mariners, like he's had so many injury problems that yeah. you forget that the suspension is totally separate from that. And he got it's it's weird to sort of feel bad for somebody who is serving a suspension, but the fact that they didn't shorten his suspension at all to kind of prorate it for the sixty game season kind of screwed him out of a lot. But yeah, he came back, he looked like he was, you know, exactly as he was pre-suspension five good starts if they would have somehow miraculously won a playoff game to get to a game three he would have started game three of a playoff series and I think that's sort of the expectation for him now is if you can go you know 150 to 170 innings be ready to start game three of a potential uh, playoff series I mean he's been consistently really good it's just been hard to tell because of all the injuries and the suspension well, while we're talking about the pitching, I guess I'll move over to the bullpen where the Twins lost a lot of names and faces from last season. They also made a notable acquisition in Alex Colome, and Colome is someone who seems underrated based on his results, certainly maybe doesn't have peripherals that take the shape that one expect from a dominant late-inning reliever, but he has been that for quite a while now, so... How does he do that? What gives the Twins confidence that he can continue to do that? And then how does he fit into this bullpen hierarchy, which doesn't seem like a hierarchy, really? It seems like there isn't going to be a, a dedicated closer necessarily. So what's the plan there? hes I mean, he's so strange in terms of statistically. Like every year he's got a sub three ERA. Last year it was something, zero point something, I think. He allowed mm -hmm. no homers. And every year, like whatever your secondary statistic or metric of choice is, it's, you know, four something or high right. threes. And it's like, yeah, I think part of it is he basically now is a two pitch pitcher who throws a cutter like two thirds or three fourths of the time. And the fact that that pitch is, while not quite like a knuckleball in terms of not abiding by the normal rules of batting average on balls and play and all that. I think it's somewhat closer to that than a normal pitch. And so yeah, he doesn't get the swings and misses that you would want from a dominant late-inning reliever, but if it's just all weak contact and ground balls and he doesn't give up homers, that can be a pretty simple recipe too. That's definitely what they're hoping for. I mean, he was available on a, a pretty reasonable one-year deal. 
And then, like you mentioned, I mean, he's been a closer. I think he has like the third most saves the last five years. He was a closer for the White Sox the past two seasons. I would probably bet on him leading the Twins in saves, but I don't know that anybody's going to have 30-plus saves for the Twins. I think Colomay, uh, Taylor Rogers, Hansel Robles, Tyler Duffy, they're, they're definitely talking a very big game about you know mixing and matching, closer by committee, fluid roles, all the, all the buzzwords that I cringe to hear, not because I think it's a bad plan. I think it's a good plan. I just know that the first blown save leads to a million newspaper columns about what a disaster it is. <laughs> Maybe we can talk about position players now. I I imagine that Twins fans are very intrigued by Alex Kirilov. He was one of the rare prospects to make his debut in the postseason. So he actually doesn't show as having 2020 Major League stats on his Fangraphs player page because of that strange postseason debut that, you know, was only a handful of plate appearances. But what should Twins fans be expecting from him this year? I mean, he's, uh, I think, probably one of the 10 just sort of hitting only prospects in baseball. He's definitely their best prospect. Like you said, they by September of last year, just from the work he had done uh, at the alternate site, they were pretty convinced he was one of their best hitters. So yeah, he started the second playoff game, got a, got a line drive single. I think if service time were not an issue at all, he would probably be the opening day left fielder. The Twins have been sort of hinting that they're not going to go with the usual service time manipulation gambit, but it's unclear. They they certainly haven't made any sort of official statement on that. And the other thing is he's not hit particularly well this spring, you know, know, limited at-bats, but his presence and MLB readiness is why they non-tendered Eddie Rosario a year ahead of his free agency, who's been a really good player for them. They certainly envision, I think, Kirilov being their long-term number three hitter. It's just a matter of, is, is it going to be opening day? Is it going to be May 1st? Uh, because the other thing is, even if you send him or another prospect with the service time angle to AAA, there are no AAA games for a month. So you can't even really use the excuse of them right. needing more at-bats or them needing defensive uh, proficiency at AAA. It's, it's sort of like, would you rather have him in the opening day lineup or have him go sit at the alternate site, which he already did for an entire year? I want to ask about another outfielder we touched on already, Max Kepler. I'm so confounded by Kepler's BABIP. It's just such a strange yeah. thing that I know that you've touched on before, but it's really historically significant how low it is. I, I just went back to 1993, which is when league BABIP bounced up to roughly where it is today and where it's been ever since because of uh, the ball changing then or expansion or whatever it was. And in that time, I looked at everyone who's had 2,000 plate appearances. That's 835 hitters. And the only hitters who have had a lower BABIP over that span then Kepler's 252 are Rod Barajas and Henry Blanco so Kepler has been quite a productive player anyway but if he didn't have the BABIP of a slow catcher then he would be even better unless you can't separate how he succeeds with why the BABIP is low it was 236 again last year so what is going on here? How does he produce such a low BABIP, and can that potentially change, which would maybe allow him to break out even more than he has? Yeah, like you said, it's very strange. Like He's a, a left-handed hitter, a good athlete, like probably yeah, above average fast. speed. Yeah, like, definitely. It's, yeah. it's such a strange thing to be like, oh, yeah, he has the same profile as Henry Blanco. Right. <laughs> uh, which and, and yet every – I mean, it's been very consistent. Like It's mm-hmm. always well below average – I think there's been a bunch of theories about it that he sort of either has a certain zones in his sort of, 
I don't know, hot zone that he can actually do incredible damage with, but he doesn't, he's not sort of equipped to adapt to certain pitches that aren't, I don't want to say grooved, but in exact areas he likes, which leads to, you know, some automatic out pop-up type of, or, or weak fly balls or ground balls. But I mean, I don't know why that would be necessarily unique to him because he, I mean, his swing is pretty smooth looking. It's, it's, it's very strange. And like you said, I mean, he's emerged as a 30 homer type of guy. He draws a lot of walks. He doesn't strike out much. And yet you look at his batting average and it's essentially the same as Miguel Sano, who is the exact opposite type of hitter. He's got, you know, a 380 BABIP a lot of the time, but he strikes out so much. So it's been one of the most confusing things. I know they've tried to sort of make adjustments to his swing, but you also don't want to mess with him because now he's been an above average, solidly above average hitter for two years in a row. And it's also weird. He's been their leadoff man the past two years, and there's a decent right. chance he's going to be their leadoff man again, which shows, A, that they don't care about betting average. But I just – that's – he's an all-star type of player if he's hitting like 250. And if he's hitting like 275, which it doesn't seem like it should be asking that much from a BABIP standpoint, I honestly think he can be one of the best all-around outfielders in the league because he's a great defensive right fielder. He can play a capable center field. He's a pretty good athlete. Uh, yeah, he, I mean, it's it's confusing, but I, I wouldn't bet on it correcting itself just because I feel like similar to what we just talked about with Colome, he's an outlier. But at some point, if you do that five years in a row, are you really expecting it to change? I don't know that there was a ton of danger that Nelson Cruz was not going to return to the Twins, but I guess we can kind of start there. How much actual competition did Minnesota face in retaining Cruz? And I guess, you know, we ask this question seemingly every year of Nelson Cruz, if this is going to be the year where his age finally catches up to him. Um, but it's, you know, it remains a pertinent question because we all keep getting older and so does he. So I, I'm curious sort of what the market looked like for him and then uh, what your expectations are for him in 2021 every year the past three i guess i've written an article that's like can nelson cruz keep producing like this at age fill in the blank <laughs> and every year i you know look up all the relevant numbers and i say like you know uh 40 of all hitters who were great at 38 become unusable at 39 and then it's 60 percent become unusable at 40 and like he's at the point now where you're talking about like single digit players his age in the history of baseball who have been like, you know, all-star level hitter or MVP caliber hitter. And yet I don't know that I would bet against him being great. I would certainly take the under on last year's OPS or whatever stat you want to use. And that plays a part in the competition or lack of that they had for him. But I also think without the NL having the DH, they're just, you couldn't point to really any contending team that A, had a clear opening at DH, and B, wanted to spend, you know, $12, $15 million on him, which is why the reason it dragged out so long is he initially wanted a two-year deal. The Twins wanted a one-year deal. And he initially wanted to wait to find out for sure either way if the National League was going to have the DH because he felt like, well, if that gets announced after I've signed, I'm going to be annoyed because the Dodgers or the Padres or the Mets or somebody would have come in with a, a much bigger offer. So then they there was, I don't know, what like two days before he actually re-signed, there was the memo out that said teams are been told to expect no DH in the National League, and that finally sort of got the ball moving on him re-signing. But uh, it was a, I guess, team-friendly deal, but it's also where was he going to go? Like I think there was some talk about him going to Texas, but does he want to really – end his career playing for a non-contender. 
the twins wanted him back, but I think you know they kind of realized what the musical chairs situation was with a with a forty year old DH. So the big addition was Andrelton Simmons, and it's hard to analyze his last couple of years because he had the ankle issues, and then of course he was open about how hard he found last year, psychologically speaking, and he opted out right at the tail end of that season. So it's hard to know what to make of the stats or how much we should just kind of toss those out. But his defensive metrics over that period have been less otherworldly, certainly, than we were accustomed to in the past. And he is uh, turning 32 later this year. So do the Twins still see him as the ultra-elite best defender in baseball-type wizard? Or are they hoping for more modest returns? I mean, I think they would take very good as opposed to amazing because he's Mm -hmm. replacing... Jorge Polanco, who, I mean, he tried, but he just, he doesn't have the range or the arm to be a shortstop. So he's moved to second base full-time uh, and Ari- Luis Arise has moved from second base to super utility. So they feel like all, you know, all three of those are sort of defensive upgrades. I mean, Simmons is healthy now. Hopefully, you know, like you said, his issues with last season in terms of like COVID protocols and all that will be hopefully less of an issue this season. Uh, he seems to be in a pretty good mindset, um, just based on you know talking to him on Zoom or whatever. But uh, <laughs> they they really feel like between Simmons at shortstop, Donaldson at third base, Byron Buxton in the outfield, that they've dramatically improved the defense. So that maybe it looks like, as we talked about earlier, like they've kind of filled in the blanks with the rotation and they've had to replace guys in the bullpen. But they feel like the defense will help the pitching a lot more than than maybe is, uh, I don't know, conventional wisdom with the Twins. But again, Simmons's health is an issue. Donaldson's health is an issue. Buxton's health is always an issue. So the the sort of ideal lineup or defensive alignment that they can put on the field, I think, is probably one of the best in, in the American League. But the drop-off, if any of those guys miss his time, is, is pretty big. Yeah, I wanted to ask about Donaldson. I know that he's talked this spring about the body feeling really good and sort of being in in good shape and hopefully his sort of injury woes are behind him. His 2020 was interesting. And again, I don't want to make too much out of like 100 plate appearances, but the the sort of contours of his offense were a little bit different than than we've seen from him in the past. So I'm curious, you know, what you're really expecting from him this year. It would be nice to have like a full healthy twins Josh Donaldson season because I feel like we haven't, we've been denied that. And so I'm curious kind of what you think he's going to be able to do this year and sort of what the the shape of the offense that he brings to the field might look like. Yeah, I mean, that's that might be their biggest sort of question mark is, you know, Simmons was technically their big addition, but in a way they're kind of hoping that a fuller time Josh Donaldson is their big addition because they never really got the full effect of that last year for a bunch of reasons. I mean, he says he feels great now physically, but... He said that last year and the calf injury, which is what he keeps having, is so strange in that it just, you feel great until you tweak the calf and then he's just had such difficulty coming back from that. It was the case with multiple teams over multiple years. I think basically three out of the last four years, he's missed significant time with it. They've tried to adjust like his sort of training regimen or pregame stretching to hopefully combat some of that, but... I mean, he's going to bat either second or fourth in their lineup most of the time. I was, despite the fact that he was kind of limping through part of last season, I thought he still was an excellent defensive third baseman. Like you said, the the sort of offensive profile was different and, I don't know, kind of weird, but ultimately he was still a well above average hitter. He still had some moments where he hit for power, drew some walks. I, I think that 
you know, as we talked about, like at the very beginning, like, is this a championship caliber team? That might be the biggest single thing that could sort of elevate them beyond just pretty good team that could win a division to one of the best teams in the, in at least the American league is, can they get, I guess it's sort of like we, I was talking about with Buxton. Can they get 130 something games out of Josh Donaldson? And the guy you mentioned who was bumped down the depth chart by Simmons's signing, Luis Arise, I want to see him hit. Everyone wants to see him hit. He has the highest projected batting average of anyone in baseball, according to the Fangrass depth charts, and by eight points or so. And he's obviously shown that off in roughly a, a full season's worth of plate appearances, almost, at the major league level. So how does he fit in here, barring injury to Simmons or Polanco or someone how does he get at bats both this year and long term? Will he have a positional home? It is weird to take like a 24 year old career th- 330 hitter <laughs> and be like, now you're our super bench guy. Yeah. I think that's like one of the biggest challenges Rocco Baldelli is going to have to figure out is you need to find a way for him to start at least like four or five times a week. I think the plan is basically, you know, he subs one day for Donaldson, he subs one day for Cruz, one day for Simmons, one day for Polanco, and you move everyone around to kind of make that fit. He could maybe play some outfield too, but I- I'm fully convinced that Arise is the real deal. Like, I-, I don't know that he'll hit 330 for his career, but like his contact skills and plate discipline and just overall approach, it's such, it's so amazing to watch like an, an, uh, at bat by at bat basis. And last year he had a knee problem basically the entire season. And he still hit like 320, still barely struck out. Uh, I think they were, they're also a little worried about him defensively just because he's had both knees, uh, have been problematic for his career at, at 23, 24. So I think they almost feel like maybe 500 plate appearances and a couple days off a week are better for him short and long term than, than 650 plate appearances a year. But I agree with you. Like any game where their lineup doesn't have a rise in it. I think if you're a fan in the stands of that game, you kind of feel let down because, I mean, he's not going to hit homers or anything, but it, it, it has like a weird, I don't know, like a Tony Gwynn Ichiro type of vibe where like you're just expecting a hit every time. Speaking of contact skills, you knew this question was coming. Is my man Williams going to get on this roster this season? And oh, if yeah. not, can they trade him to the <laughs> Orioles or something where he can start every day? Uh, I'm, uh, I would say maybe 50-50 that he'll be uh, on the I think they're so convinced. They're very convinced that he can hit, as yeah. am I, as are every projection, as are you, I know. But they're just they, – they don't trust him to catch, and they have two good catchers above him. And he has this weird defensive versatility where it's like – Well, he can play everywhere, but he's not good anywhere. So, you know, he's more of like a break glass in case of emergency type of usage, which on some teams, I think that would have a lot more value than this current Twins uh, setup. So Free Williams. Yeah, I mean, it it might be like I definitely think he's a major league player. And there are teams that could easily give him like three to 400 at bats. He could be a backup catcher. He could play some other spots. I just I worry a little bit that the Twins are past the point of kind of pushing for that to happen. But on the other hand, they've had plenty of chances to drop him from the 40-man roster for for a year and a half now, and they haven't done it. So I think he'll play in the majors this year. I just don't know that it'll be a whole lot or on opening day. Maybe this is an opportunity to ask you about how the the ongoing one-knee catching experience is going in Minnesota. The Twins were one of the sort of early adopters of that approach and one of the more aggressive ones. What has the strategy borne out and how are the players adapting to it? 
Well, the first thing that happened was their catching coach got poached by the Yankees immediately right. <laughs> <laughs> for like three times as much money and a permanent uh, major league job. Uh, then they replaced him and they, they kept it going. Um, Mitch Garver was the, the sort of guinea pig initially because he was a poor framer and a poor defender and they turned him into an above average guy. I think this year is going to be very interesting because they have a, I guess he's a prospect still, Ryan Jeffers, who was out of UNC Wilmington a couple of years ago. They drafted him in the second round and every scouting report you could read was, oh, this guy's going to be a DH. He's a terrible defensive catcher. And within like two months in their system, they were saying, not only is this guy a good defensive catcher, he might be like one of the best pitch framers in baseball. Sure enough, he debuts last year because Garver got hurt. He plays like 25 games. He's on a per-pitch basis, like a top five pitch, pitch framer immediately. So whatever they believe in, in terms of turning mediocre catchers into very good catchers, they are full speed ahead with it. And it's, if anything, they have, unfortunately for Williams... They have too many catchers at this point to sort of split the playing time. Yeah, and offensively speaking, there aren't many players who had more whiplash than Mitch Garver going from career year best hitting catcher in baseball to not hitting at all last year in 23 games. So is he just, well, somewhere in the middle, which is roughly where he was in 2018? And if so, is that good enough to hold off Jeffers? Yeah, I honestly thought they might try to trade him this offseason, but it's difficult because, like you said, he was so hurt and ineffective last year. I think he's going to start the year as the, the starter, at least in name. But they're planning basically a 50-50 split, I think, with Jeffers. I think you're going to see Garver take most of the at-bats against lefties, even though they're both right-handed hitters. But I, I don't think there's any doubt that by next year, they expect to have Jeffers as the clear-cut long-term starter and so Garver is maybe playing to kind of keep his role with the Twins, but I think beyond that, more playing for like his, I don't know, league-wide perception of is what we saw in 2019 at all, is he able to approach that at all? I think he's willing to, and the coaching staff seems willing to just write off last year as just a mess all around. But, I mean, he wasn't an amazing player before 2019 either. He was a solid player. So to to do what he did in 2019 – and then basically have a lost year just presents so many questions. But for now, at least, I would expect him to be the primary catcher initially. But I don't know that he's going to – his grip on the job is is definitely pretty loose because of Jeffers. Maybe this is an opportunity to ask about some of the prospects who are sort of knocking at the door, at least of the 40-man. I know that Minnesota has a number of guys like Trevor Larnack and Johan Duran and Jeffers and Kirilov, and I'm sure I'm forgetting a couple of others who have to be added to the to the 40-man this coming offseason, um, lest they be exposed to the Rule 5. So who who among the sort of upper level guys do you think we might see at some point during 2021? And then I don't know that I really have a Royce Lewis question apart from just feeling bad for the guy. Yeah. Um, but but if you've heard anything new about sort of uh, his recovery timeline from it was an ACL tear, right? Yep, ACL yeah, tear from his ACL tear. That would that would be good too. Royce Lewis is the most outgoing, positive, optimistic person ever. So in a weird way, it's like well. If that was going to happen to anybody, he'll probably handle it the best. But it's also doubly sad because, like, he did a he he asked to do a press conference like three days later uh, after they announced he was out for the season, and he answered every question and he had such a smile on his face. And I wanted to be like, I'm sad for you. Like, this is just it's a bummer. But I think he was likely going to be a factor probably in the second half for them, maybe because Simmons. Is locked in at shortstop, so it more affects his long term. But right. like in terms of their overall, let's say top ten prospects, 
I really think at least six or seven, maybe more, are major league ready. I mean, Kirloff and Jeffers have technically already gotten there. Brent Rooker's already gotten there. Jorge Alcala's already gotten there. Larnick, I think if if Kirloff didn't exist, Larnick would probably be getting a lot more attention as a major league ready lefty corner outfield bat. Yeah. Duran, Balazovic, Cantorino, they have some frontline pitching, which I guess we sort of talked about that they've been kind of filling the blanks of the rotation, waiting for those type of guys to to emerge with the new pitching development they have. So that's to me what's probably most exciting from a for Twins fans for this season is the major league team's really good. I think they have a chance to win a, a third straight division title, but Twins fans are going to start to see the mixing in of of high impact or our high upside guys who are going to be part of the next core too. Yeah. Are there any extension candidates here, either among the prospects you just mentioned, or maybe some of the core guys who are not already signed long-term? Has there been any discussion of that? Well, I wrote an article saying they should extend Kirilov like, you know, yesterday. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I hit publish on it, uh, someone from the twins reached out and said, you should look up who his agent is and see if that's likely. And his agent is, of course, Scott Boris. And his father, I think, has some role with Scott Boris's company. So they, I think their perception is that's probably unlikely to get one of those super team-friendly buyout all the free agency years for, for Kirloff. But in terms of like major league guys, the, the two biggest candidates would be Barrios and Buxton. For part of what we talked about earlier is like the, you can see the kind of finish line to their twins career if nothing comes about an extension. They each have this year and next year. Uh, Barrios has kind of driven a, a hard line in terms of whether it's arbitration, whether it's turning down previous extension uh, offers of, he, you know, he wants to maximize his value. He's not afraid to go year to year. He did mention, I think a couple of weeks ago, that his agent has at least talked to them about it. But they're both in this sort of weird zone where they're past the minimum earning stage and they've made six million, eight million in a year, they can see free agency around the corner. And so whatever like normal leverage that a team can sometimes unfortunately apply to players who haven't made much yet is sort of evaporated for them. So now it's just a matter of are the twins willing to just pay what they need to pay to keep them from free agency. I think Barrios to me seems more likely to agree to something just because I wonder do you want to sign, let's say, Byron Buxton to a five year deal when so much of his value is based on defense and how that will age and with all his injuries and everything, I think they might be a little bit uh, scared of that. And they have a prospect named Gilberto Celestino uh, that they got in the Ryan Presley deal from Houston a few years ago, who I think timing-wise could potentially step in, in in center field two years from now. Right. Well, this is not your first Effectively Wild podcast preview, so I assume you've come prepared with a prediction. How many games do you think the Twins will win in 2021? I am officially predicting... 93 wins. All right. And they will win the division title by one game. And will they win a playoff game? Uh, well, maybe. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, maybe a bridge too far for the yes. prediction. But, but they'll get there. They'll have another chance at least. All right. Well, if you are a Twins fan, you probably do not need me to tell you where to find Aaron Gleeman. But just in case, you can find him on Twitter at Aaron Gleeman. You can find him covering the Twins at The Athletic. And you can hear him either via podcast apps or on the radio on KFAN on Gleeman and the Geek. Thank you, as always, Aaron. Thank you. With that, we will take one more quick break, and we'll be back with Evan Woodbury to talk about the Tigers. I'm central to nowhere thinking of sweeping it clean when we choose to 
We are back and ready to talk about the Detroit Tigers, and we are joined now by Evan Woodbury, who covers the Tigers for MLive Media Group. Hello, Evan. Hey, how are you guys doing? We're doing all right. So let's start with the man who will be filling out the Tigers lineup cards in his extraordinarily neat penmanship this season, A.J. Hinch. The Tigers hardly could have hired Hinch any faster than they did. They struck incredibly quickly after his suspension was over to interview him and hire him so quickly that it seemed from afar as if the interview was mostly a formality. So what is it that the Tigers value so highly about Hinch, aside from his penmanship, and what does he need to do to redeem himself in the public view after the Astros debacle? Well, you know, it's it's interesting. It seems like in in almost every sport, the the new manager or head coach or general manager or what have you is always a reaction to the previous one. Mm-hmm. And in this case, the Tigers had kind of the old school of old school managers in Ron Gardenhire, who was in a certain sense a response to Brad Osmus, who was a, a guy who became manager without having you know any coaching experience whatsoever, just almost uh, you know very quickly after his playing days. Right. Uh, so they went in the other direction with Gardenhire, and now they're swinging back to uh, a very analytic style manager in, in A.J. Hinch, and obviously one who uh, who has quite a, a track record as well. And yeah, I mean, it, it did the fact that Al Avila picked up the phone minutes after the end of the World Series and, and called A.J. Hinch and said, hey, we need, to, we need you to get on a plane to Detroit, preferably tomorrow. That does indicate that all the interviews they did prior to that were, were just sort of biding time until they could talk to A.J. Hinch. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I think it's it's he does have a relationship with some of the guys in the Tigers organization. It was something that they could think about for a long time because this was all kind of lining up neatly ever since his suspension came down. There was the perception that it was probably Garden Hires last year. The Tigers knew they were going to have an opening. They knew that they were, in theory, starting to emerge from the rebuild and, and put the you know, it's the pedal to the metal again. So it, it all kind of lined up nightly, nicely. They had a lot of time to think about it and, and uh, ultimately pulled the trigger. And you mentioned the philosophical difference between Hinch and Gardenhire. So how has that manifested so far? Has Hinch been doing things any differently in a very clear way than last season? Or is there a different relationship between Hinch and the front office than there was between Gardenhire and the front office? I think that's the big thing. And it's not that's not to say that Gardenhire didn't get along with the front office, but it was a more of kind of a an old school arrangement where it's like, hey, I'm the manager, you give me the players, I fill out the lineup card. I don't there's not a lot of input back and forth. Whereas with Hinch, especially with his background before becoming a manager on the front office side, on the player personnel side, I think there's a lot more input in in the roster decisions, the roster management, the free agent acquisitions. You know, things where you might, if you're signing, a, say, a Nomar Masara, maybe you just call Garden Hire after it's already a, a done deal and say, hey, this is the outfielder we're getting. Uh, with Hinch, he's very directly involved in the process and, and the decision making in a way that I, I think probably Garden Hire was not. So I think that's the biggest difference. And I think that's, you know, maybe adding a little bit more of an importance to this spring training because not only for all these players, whether you're a prospect or a veteran or someone that's marginal and on the bubble, this is your first look with a new coaching staff, but it's also the first looking look with a new manager 
who has maybe some deeper player personnel, uh, you know, roster management input than the previous guy had. So I think it's probably doubly important in that sense. And, you know, all the other stuff, all the other on-field stuff, it's, it's the same things you hear every time there's a new transition. It's, you know, the emphasis on fundamentals and defense and base running and all that stuff, which I don't, I don't really put a lot of stock in, but I think the big, the big change is just going to be that, that Hinch is the manager, yes, but but he's also a guy that, that is going to have some some big picture input as well. We're going to talk about the players who will be on the field a lot this year, but I want to start by talking about some of the guys who are going to make up what I imagine the front office hopes will be the next really good Tigers core. And we'll start with the pitching. Detroit took a sort of interesting approach to 2020. They gave big league opportunities to some of their sort of best and, and youngest prospects. They brought up Drake Scooble. They, they gave uh, time to Casey Mize. It didn't go phenomenally well for either of those guys, but they did see big league action. And then, of course, Matt Manning kind of looms in the in the minor league. So I'm curious for Scooble and for Mize, sort of what your expectations are for how much big league time they'll see this year, and then when we might see Matt Manning. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I think you know, looking at it objectively, if the Tigers had to do it again, maybe they wouldn't have brought up Mize or Scooble last year and just started him fresh this year. You know, Al Avila, to his credit, if you want to believe this, always said that, that they wouldn't play games with service time, that when they felt they were ready, they would bring him up. And, you know, obviously they didn't bring him up from opening day last year, but they did bring him up fairly early in the season. And, you know, when given the way the season was gone, it made a, might have made sense not to bring them up at all. So I really think, and Al Avila said at the time that once he brought them up, he wanted them up for good. I think if they can manage it, if their performance dictates it, that both Casey Mize and Tarek Skubal will be on the opening day roster. Now, so far in spring, Tarek Skubal has looked like he absolutely belongs on the opening day roster. He looks uh, really good, and Casey Mize has not looked as good. His stuff has been pretty sharp. His velocity has been really good. Uh, but the the walks, something that was there a bit last year and was something that was very uncharacteristic of him, not only for minor leagues, but also for his college career, uh, it's those are rearing their heads again uh, this spring. I think he has three walks in all three of his his spring outings so far, which are relatively short stints. So that's a concern, and I think they want to make sure that Casey Mize earns it, that he's not just given a job. The problem that the Tigers and pretty much every team with young prospects is going to run into is you don't really want Casey Mize going to Toledo to sit in the cold for one month and not being participating in any games. That's not an ideal solution. So I think in a in a perfect world, they could get him on the team and that his performance would dictate it. For Matt Manning, who was actually just uh, recently uh, sent out to the minor league camp, he's a little bit behind schedule through no fault of his own. He, he got hurt last year and was shut down in the alternate site. Otherwise, he probably would have made a debut last year. I think he's a guy that they're lo- kind of looking towards later in the summer as a guy that once Mize's innings limits start to take effect. Once Scooble's innings limits are a factor, Michael Fulmer's innings limits, uh, then potentially you've got the reinforcements and a guy like Matt Manning could step in at some point in the summer and kind of kind of finish off the season. Mize is someone who has been very vocal about pitch design and really embracing some of the new ways that pitchers go about their business. And that seems like it's been an area of focus for the Tigers over the past few years, too, just modernizing their pitcher development process. So how have you seen that pay dividends? If it has yet, maybe it's too soon to say, but how have you seen it at least transform their player development process? You know, do they have new technology around? Do they have people in new positions that are helping pitchers with that approach? 
Yeah, starting even before the the new AJ Hinch regime came on board, they have brought in you know hitting and, and pitching coordinators. The idea being one and in, in greater investment in technology. Two, the idea being that a, a player is tracked from the beginning to the end of his time in the organization. Uh, the idea that they've got all the numbers and data on him from from the time he's in rookie ball or single A that they can you know, have a, a consistent, coordinated pitching philosophy from beginning to end. And obviously that's not the first time we've heard that or or the, the only organization that's doing that, but it's something that they've, they've made a point of making an investment in from a technology standpoint, from a training standpoint, and organizationally. And now, you know, going after Chris Fetter, who's the new pitching coach, uh, who comes from a totally college background, is kind of interesting because, you know, the colleges, especially the, the big colleges, have have been in certain respects a little bit ahead of the game from some of the professional organizations just with the investment in technology with knowing how to use that technology and you know he's he's definitely brought that to the table with the Tigers current pitchers and you know frankly many of the Tigers current pitchers are big driveline guys Matthew Boyd is huge on pitch design he brought a bunch of pitchers out to Washington uh, this this winter to work on that stuff and some of them were, were kind of new to the, the whole pitch design philosophy and that's something that they've worked a lot on. So, you know, and, he, and we've seen it probably most notably with Tarek Skubal, who just, you know, up and decided he was going to try a kind of what he's calling a, a splitter, just, you know, kind of emulating Casey Mize a little bit. And that's something you you rarely see just a guy in spring training to say, I'm going to pick up this really, you know, a somewhat complicated and unique pitch. Uh, but so far has been going well for him. But I, I think there's that kind of, uh, you know, an attitude that, that maybe is a little bit more progressive than it was in, in past years in the Tigers organization. You mentioned Boyd. I was going to bring him up. Since his mini breakout in the first half of 2019, when it seemed like he had really gone to driveline and figured some things out, things have not gone so well. And he has led the league in home runs allowed in each of the past two seasons. He led the league in earned runs allowed last season. And he's still sort of nominally, I guess, the Tigers' top starter. He's listed number one on their roster resource depth chart. Is there hope that he can regain that? form from the first half of 2019 and what if anything has he done to address the gopheritis that he has suffered from the last couple of years yeah it, i think that he's probably the, the toughest because it's just it's so hard to quantify what separates the the good boyd from the bad boyd it's you know it's i think if there were an easy solution they would have had it by now and and certainly if you want to say hindsight is 2020 if they had an opportunity to go back to the the all-star break in 2019, maybe they they look a little bit harder for a trade partner. That's not the first pitcher that Tigers could say that about. Certainly Michael Fulmer falls in that same category. If they could go back in time and when his trade value is at its highest, maybe they would uh, make a different decision. But now that they have Boyd and and obviously would like to rehabilitate his value a little bit, if they were going to trade him in the future, I think the the long ball is, is the big issue. And, you know, maybe that it's, it's a false hope, but you read these stories about the dead in baseball and you think, you know, of all the, the guys that that might help out, Matthew Boyd would be pretty high on the list because the gopher ball has been uh, the number one thing for him. You know, he, he's not, he's never had what you would call an overpowering fastball, but he does have a slider. And I think if you're looking for the effectiveness of the slider, if you're looking for the good Boyd versus the bad Boyd, that's been the biggest factor, getting more swings and misses, getting more of those strikeouts on, on that slider. And that's something he's talked a little bit about this spring. But, you know, I don't think there is a, an easy solution. And, and you know, I, I think if you're a skeptic, you say, well, that was a, a great 
two or three month run in, in 2019, but that's not really who Boyd is. I, I tend to be more optimistic. I mean, you look at the, the, the strikeout rate that he has, even when his ERA has been close to five, and you say this is a guy who, who there, there's still value there. If he became a free agent tomorrow, there'd be a lot of teams that say, you know what, we want to get our hands on Matt Boyd and see, see if we can find that old Matt Boyd of 2019. I, I think he still remains a very tantalizing pitcher. And I think he's going to be, if you're looking for who is project number one for Chris Fetter, the new pitching coach, I think he would be high on the list. I think a guy who gets lost a little bit among, you know, the the Matt Boyds and then this sort of trio of rising um, pitching prospects is Spencer Turnbull, who turned in another good season last year. Uh, he made gains both from a ERA and FIP perspective. I know he was giving up fewer home runs and was throwing his his curveball uh, a little less and his changeup a little more. What do you attribute the sort of advance in his game to? Is it just the pitch mix changing? And what do you expect from him in 2021? Yeah, Spencer Turnbull's kind of an interesting category because he was he was a second round draft pick out of Alabama, but battled some some injuries coming up and was never really big on the prospect radar for the most part. Uh, kind of sort of an afterthought, and has has really turned into a, a pretty solid starting pitcher. Uh, even you know, I think they're even going into last year. There was some skepticism, the or not skepticism, but the idea. Oh, maybe maybe eventually he becomes a reliever once some of the younger pitchers come up. He's just kind of a placeholder. But he, he's a guy that's really found a nice rhythm as a starter. Like you said, the pitch mix has been something he's worked a lot on. He's he went out to drive line this winter as well. Worked with uh, worked with Matt Boyd. Worked with some of the the uh, the pitch artists out there. Uh, and you know he's had a he's a pretty nice spring. So I mean, it really, if you're looking at objectively, he might. Although Matt Boyd will probably be the opening day starter and is probably the guy you pencil in as the number one starter. I mean, if you're looking at recent track records, Spencer Turnbull has just as much reason to be up there. And, you know, his another potential trade ship if you're looking down the road uh, as the Tigers have all these young pitchers coming up, if they do decide to to unload some of the, the more veteran pitchers. You know, he's a guy that could be potentially a hotter property just because he's under has a lot of team control left, doesn't make a whole lot of money. I think it's still on a minimum salary right now. So just first arbitration is next year. He's a he's a guy that could be potential trade bait later on this, this summer. So you mentioned Fulmer and potentially waiting too long to trade him. And he is also similar to Boyd in that he has had big time home run issues too. He is coming off a, a season with a sky high ERA as well. Is he someone whose rotation spot is secure? Could he potentially work in relief? What's the outlook for Fulmer? Well, you know, there's really not a good plan B. I mean, the, what they were hoping was that that he would look really good this spring and make it an easy decision to put him in the rotation, and that has not happened yet. And obviously, you don't want to overreact to spring outings by any means, but after what he did last year, and basically last year there was no minor league rehab available, so the Tigers said, okay, we're just going to put you in three inning starts, three innings basically from the beginning to the end of the season. He had 10 or 11 starts. And frankly, they weren't very good. I think his ERA was was close to nine. So the idea was that, okay, that, that was his rehab appearance. Now it's starting fresh in 2021. And, and some of his starts here in spring training uh, have looked very much like last year. He's gotten hit a little bit. He's gotten hit fairly hard. Uh, the stuff looks fine, but I think the, the 95, 96, 97 fastball that of early in his career is not there and, and may never be coming back. So he may have to learn to be a little bit of a different pitcher with a 93 or 94 mile fastball. I, I just, I, there's not really a good solution. Technically, they could option him to the minor leagues, but that's not really what they want to do. 
Uh, technically, they could put him in the bullpen, but again, if you're if he's not having success as a starter, you know maybe that just means basically garbage innings until he figures things out. It's it, there's no good scenario. I, I'm sure what they're still hoping is that he gets back on track this spring, finishes with with three or four strong starts at the end of spring, and they can say, okay, you're our number three starter, just like old times, and we'll see what happens. But as of yet, that has not happened, and and it's kind of a I think a worry going on looking ahead to the regular season. Tigers really remade their outfield this offseason. Obviously, Jacoby Jones still remains in center, but they brought in Nomar Mazzara on a one-year deal and Robbie Grossman on a two-year contract. And I'm curious from your perspective, I mean, Grossman, I, I imagine they're hoping will stick around for a little longer given the duration of his deal. But do you expect those guys to sort of play the full season with Detroit or are the, are the Tigers sort of hoping that they will flash and be a potential trade bait at the deadline? Yeah, I think that's kind of been their mo really since the since the start of the rebuilding process is got get guys who are bounce back candidates or high upside candidates and then and then if possible flip them for what you can get uh, in July. You know, Grossman, I, I really think they liked his profile, drawing a lot of walks, getting on base, just because the Tigers are you know really to a man strike out a lot and don't walk very much, and I think they wanted to to emphasize changing that profile with one of their free agent acquisitions. And even though it was only a two-year, $10 million deal, the Tigers hadn't signed someone for more than one year since 2016. So in that sense, it was kind of a big investment. Masara, I, I think, was just a guy they saw, you know, I think he's only 26 years old, although it seems like he's been around forever, uh, as a potential upside guy coming off, coming off a really bad year in Chicago. Uh, you know, kind of, kind of the same mode as, say, Julio Tehran, a uh, high upside guy, not too old, coming off a really terrible year in 2020, kind of a bounce back candidate that they could get on the cheap. And if all goes well, you know, maybe flip uh, in July. And, you know, I, I think Mazaras intriguing for that reason. He, he's always, he's been fairly consistent up until, uh, up until last year and, and is still relatively young. Uh, but, you know, the, rea- the reality is he's 2000 some major league plate appearances is a is a below average offensive player and probably a, a fairly below average defensive outfielder as well and there's a reason he was available just before the start of spring training for uh, a very low level major league deal so I, I think it's just it's a bounce back play and, and maybe a very slight upgrade for the tigers but uh, obviously not something that's going to move the needle a whole lot yeah, Grossman, as you mentioned, good on base guy, but last year suddenly transformed into a power hitter all of a sudden, and he hit more homers in 51 games last year than he had in 130-ish in each of the past two seasons, and I get the sense that not a lot of people believe in that power spike. He was actually listed as a, a bust candidate on Dan Simborski's list last week, just based on the fact that if you look at the quality of his contact, it, it doesn't seem to support a great power boost. So I assume that if the league as a whole really believed in that, if if he had been a, a swing changer and, and had had a truly different approach, that he wouldn't have been available for two years and $10 million. Do the Tigers believe in that at all, or is is there even a suggestion that he did do something differently that might have led to that more than just sort of a fluky 50-ish games? Yeah, he, he did talk about some of his swing philosophy, but I'm not sure that it was anything so concrete as as to suggest that the dramatic increase that, that we saw. And I think the Tigers would look at that as just a bonus. I think their main interest was the, the on-base factor and his ability to draw walks and, you know, just being kind of a 
a role model of sorts on a team in which virtually no one draws walks. I think that was that was a point of emphasis for for AJ Hinch and and something that they wanted to focus on. But you know, it's I think Grossman also really there, there are a number of guys that 2020 was such a short year and and you have such a small sample and you wonder what is real and and what is the fluke. Grossman is one of those guys. Massara is one of those guys who didn't get to to play a whole lot. Uh, Tigers have some younger players that that were really good on under you know, a short sample size in 2020, like Jamer Candelario and Willie Castro. So, I mean, I think there's a, a number of guys who didn't get to uh, to really prove themselves fully over a course of a 162-game season, and, and there's probably some skepticism because of that. Yeah, this was not a good offense in 2020, and yet, as you just mentioned, there were a few hitters, a few 20-something guys who had apparent breakouts or at least surprising and encouraging seasons and Jamer Candelario is one of them Willie Castro is another Jacoby Jones so which one of those was the most encouraging or or which one are the Tigers buying into as the best bet to repeat those performances well I, I'd always been and I think a lot of the the analytics folks had always been a Jamer Candelario believer he just you know for whatever reason had not been able to put it together but in the big leagues consistently, but uh, had always been a really strong on-base guy in, in the minor leagues and uh, had always underachieved his profile to a certain extent in the big leagues. But, uh, you know, last year was a chance to kind of put everything together. And I, and I think there's a belief in the Tigers organization that that was real, that that is something that, that has staying power. Uh, Willie Castro was also very encouraging. That was a little bit more BABIP inflated last year, a little bit more fluky because of that. His, I don't even know what it was, but it was something so outrageously high that on its face, it was it was something that was not going to be repeatable. But there have been some encouraging signs from Willie Castro. He's still a relatively young guy. The power is still developing. We've seen more of that doubles and homers power in spring training. Uh, you know, and he does play you know high value position in shortstop. The fact is, if the bat comes along and the defense doesn't, they'll find a place for him somewhere. They kicked around the idea of moving him to the outfield last year. It never really came to fruition, but I think that's still potentially on the table going forward. Obviously, the best case scenario is that he's an elite hitter and becomes a serviceable defender at shortstop. But if he just becomes a, a pretty good hitter, you know they can find a place for him on the field. So he's he's a really interesting guy to watch uh, this this 21, 21 season because. You know, if the Tigers do go ahead next year and they're going to open up the wall a little bit more and there are a million shortstops available on the free agent market, the Tigers, in theory, could be could be a uh, you know, potential suitor for one of those guys. Willie Castro is the question mark. It's, he's either going to land at shortstop or if he hits, they'll find a, another home for him somewhere else. I want to ask about one of the like really promising young guys. It, it's funny. I don't know how much chance there really was that we were going to see Spencer Torkelson in 2020. I know there were some optimistic Tigers fans that he might make a, a very early big league debut. He clearly didn't. He's had a bit of a rough start to spring, but I don't think that we need to worry about that all that much, especially since he's he's working through a position change, potentially from first to third. What do you think the timeline on Torkelson in the big leagues is? And um, what, what if anything, do you think he's going to be focusing on in his expected minor league stint? Yeah, well, I, I think now, you know, there was some thought, okay, will he start in high A or maybe double A? I think that the spring performance has, has made clear high A is probably the best start for him. Uh, and, you know, that makes it not impossible, but but difficult that he'd find it his way to the big leagues in 2021. Uh, I think maybe if, if he does all goes well in the minor leagues this year, 
maybe he he makes a real strong case for opening day 2022 or if they want to play around with the service time you know some some point in on May 1st or April 27th or something in 2022 obviously that that's contingent on him doing well in the minor leagues this year and you know you don't want to overreact to uh, a 20 plate appearance sample size but he really has not looked all that good uh at the plate uh, in spring training and they have tried to find him some opportunities against less high-profile pitchers in the seventh and eighth and ninth inning when when you're you know they've got guys you never heard of on the mound, uh, and it you know they just haven't found a lot of success for him in spring training. So it's not you're not going to overreact to that sample size, but perhaps it's an indication that he does need some seasoning in the minor leagues, and, and this is not a guy that you're gonna you know a guy that you say oh well he comes out of Arizona State and could play in the big leagues tomorrow. It's like, well, probably not. It, it probably a, a year of minor league seasoning would, would help him out quite a bit uh, because there are still some some holes in his swing that that were exploited in spring training and, and obviously would be exploited by more advanced pitchers as well. The Tigers have a Rule 5 pick in camp from the Twins, Akil Badu, and uh, he's hitting 400 as we speak with power. He's looked impressive. So you just wrote about him. What is the outlook for him? What are his chances of sticking on opening day and throughout the season? It's funny because, you know, the same fans that say, oh, you shouldn't worry so much about these 20 at-bats are losing their minds over Akil Badu's 20 at-bats. <laughs> and I will say, absolutely, they've been in- incredibly impressive. He's done a phenomenal job, not just at the plate, the maturity he's shown at the plate, drawing a lot of walks, but also on the base paths and, and in the field. He's done everything right, and I don't want to take anything away from him. The fact is, though, he hasn't had success above the low A level. The last time he played regularly was 2019. When he had success at the at the low A level, he was striking out, a, I think, just under 30% of the time. So it's if he gets to the big leagues and, and they may very well keep him, he is going to struggle. I, to me, I don't think there's any doubt of that. He is going to have growing pains and he's probably going to strike out a lot. But that said, the walk profile is really impressive. It was impressive in the minor leagues. It's been impressive how he's how he's maintained it here in spring training. The defense is impressive. The base running is impressive, not just the speed, but the base running as well. He's done everything right. So I think you know, they would like to keep him. It's going to be very difficult. And I think it's, this comes down to kind of A.J. Hinch's input in the roster construction. Under Ron Gardenhire, they would just say, okay, this is a guy we like for our future. You're going to keep him fine. You know, we'll, we'll find a way. I think A.J. Hinch kind of wants to, to change the culture. And even though the Tigers probably won't win that much this year, I think he wants to have a more win-now type mentality. And generally speaking, carrying a, a Class A outfielder is not the way to, to do that. So I think there may be some pushback from A.J. Hinch, especially if Badu struggles in these final two weeks of spring training or looks like he's maybe getting a little bit more exposed by more advanced pitching. So I think that could be interesting because it is going to be a challenge to carry what will probably be a fifth outfielder on on a roster where you need a lot of pitching. But, I mean, it's rule five picks are, are always, you know, they're always a crapshoot. It's You're basically buying a lottery ticket and it, it wins very, very rarely. Maybe this is a one in a million chance they, they win a lottery. Um, but you know, I, I, I'd probably be want to see more than 20 at bats before I get too excited. Five years ago, it would have been unfathomable that we had gotten this far in a preview podcast and not talked about Miguel Cabrera, but I think it, it speaks to sort of the, the rapid decline that we've seen from him in recent years. I know that he got uh, a first base start in recent uh, Grapefruit League action. I'm curious sort of both what the club is expecting of him in 2021 and beyond. You, you mentioned that payroll is opening up 
And that's true, but they are going to enjoy Miggy for a couple more years here. And then what Cabrera's expectations are of himself, like sort of how he's talked about where he is in his own career, because I can't imagine that he's pleased with uh, the performance that he's had over the last couple of seasons. As, as far as him playing first base, that that's something where it's what Miggy wanted. And I, I don't know that the Tigers are helped a great deal by him at first base. I think, you know, his defense was a little shaky three years ago when he, or two years ago when he was last playing regularly. And it, it's very unlikely to have improved since then. But I think keeping Miggy happy is, is a important focus of a new manager. And Miggy is a lot happier when he's, he's playing first base, at least occasionally. He likes being more involved in the game. He likes being out on the field. And I think, you know, DH net full time every single day, never really agreed with him. So I think, even if it's just maybe once a week, which is about what I expect it to be, I think, if nothing else, will be a, a mental boost for Miggy. As far as his performance, I mean, you look at the best and, and worst case scenarios, and I've done this article, I think, more than once over the last three or four years, but you sure. know, a best case scenario <laughs> of like a David Ortiz as far as playing out your final years. And a worst case, I, I hate to use the word worst case scenarios, but a not so good scenario of, say, an Albert Pujols where you're making a lot of money over your final years, but not being terribly productive offensively. You know, I think obviously Miggy is going down the pool holes path, although I think there's still a hope that he could be maybe a little bit better. You know, realistically, based on, say, his last three years of production, if he can be around a league average hitter, that's that's a win. Now, that's obviously in a perfect world. You're not paying $30 million a year for that. But I think that's that's a win for where he is at. And, and what you can expect for a player of his age. I mean, he's about to turn about to turn 38. So, you know, it, he looks in great shape, but we've heard, we've heard all the normal things that we normally hear from Mickey at this time in spring training, but he does look in really good shape. He hasn't really got on track offensively in the spring so far, but he kind of goes at his own pace normally in a normal spring. Uh, but, you know, I think he, he, in talking to him this spring, he seems a little bit more up, upbeat, a little bit more... I don't know, reflective or, or nostalgic than, than we've seen him in the past. I think he is realizing that he's very much in that elder state, statesman status now. And, uh, you know, I think more interested in, in being a mentor, especially for some of the young Latin players uh, on the club. I, I think he's maybe enjoying that role or appreciating that role a little bit more than he has in the past. On the other end of the age and experience spectrum, there's Isaac Paredes, who was one of the trio of prospects that the Tigers called up last season, and they were hoping that he would provide some OBP boost as he had in the minors, and that didn't work out any better than the Casey Miser, Tarek Skubal promotions. So how soon will he get another shot? Yeah, I think, and I wouldn't have said this even a month ago, but I, I really think A.J. Hinch wants to find a way to get him on the roster. He's been playing a lot of second base, which is not as dramatic as it sounds because he did more or less come up as a, as a shortstop, as a lot of infield prospects do, uh, and kind of moved to third base because the thought was that he was kind of gaining weight and maybe was a little his range was more suitable for third base. But he actually does kind of look like a second baseman, a bigger second baseman, but a second baseman. And he's looked very extremely competent in spring training. He looks like he knows what he's doing. He looks like... You know, all the we've made a very big deal of him playing second base and he has made it look like it's not a big deal at all. Now, the Tigers already have a second baseman in in Jonathan Scope, who will probably play there most of the time. But the idea is that by being able to play third and second and maybe even short in a pinch and then DHing some and then pinch hitting some that through all those positions, you'll be able to get enough at bats to justify having better on the team. Uh, And I really think that's what uh, A.J. Hinch would like to do. 
you know, his profile as, a, as an on-base guy is something that I think Hinch likes. And although his numbers weren't great last year, he didn't look overwhelmed. And he had some he had some weird stretches where he had like a, I want to say like an 0 for 19 stretch, but he put the ball in play like 17 or 18 of those times where, you know, it wasn't a typical slump where you're striking out every other bat. So, yeah, I think there was an adjustment in facing major league pitching. He's an extremely patient hitter. And sometimes when you're, when you're a young guy in a really bad lineup, the hitters, the pitchers don't mess around with you and you're down 0-2 before you know it. I think he was seeing a lot of that last year, but I think he's uh, he's older and wiser having gone through last year's struggles. And I think they'd like to find a way to get him on the team. I'm curious sort of when you think that this team might start to spend more. We have this exciting young core of, of pitchers. There are some promising position players. They all have slightly different timelines. When do you think that the Tigers are going to look around the Central and say, this is our year, we should sort of try to take on the Twins and the White Sox? Really, the, the widespread expectation was that it was going to be this winter because you had uh, Jordan Zimmerman's contract coming off the books for $25 million a year. You had uh, no longer had no longer had the payments for Justin Verlander, no longer had the payments for Prince Fielder, even going back further. You had a lot of you know, so-called dead money that was coming off the books and really no long-term obligations other than Miguel Cabrera, which has been there for a long time and is always going to be there. So uh, the widespread perception was, it was that they were going to spend this winter and it just didn't happen. You know, and they kind of, Alavila, the general manager, kind of gave that indication back in October. He said, I, I don't know if we're going to spend it all. He set very low expectations for the winter. And I think that was kind of wise because for as little as they did this winter, they actually exceeded the extraordinarily low expectations he set back in October. But, you know, they are the Tigers in the heyday when the Tigers were good and they had a, a free spending owner. I mean, they were routinely a top five payroll team, which was kind of playing outside of their league to a certain extent to be up there with the Yankees and Dodgers. But now, I mean, now they're at least going to be a bottom 10. And I mean, depending on how it all shakes out, they could be close to a bottom five payroll team this year. And that's probably not where they should be given their revenue and and the fan base and market and things of that nature. And certainly the history of of spending money. So I I think there's, you know, fans are a little bit disappointed. Obviously, the the pandemic was was the excuse and it's certainly a viable excuse, but it, it could be an excuse for any team. And there were other teams that were still spending this winter. I think it was kind of a convenient excuse in the sense that they said, well, let's reset our goals for 2022. You know, we've got Riley Green, we've got Spencer Torkelson, we've got our young pitchers kind of in the, you know, in in the the process of, of becoming big leaguers. Maybe it makes more sense to set the expectations back one year. Now, outwardly, they're still talking about winning. They're talking about, you know, the rebuild is over. We're focused on winning. But realistically, this team is only marginally better, if that, than the team last year and the year before. And, you know, realistically, they're not going to be in the playoff hunt or anything like that. So, you know, if it doesn't happen next winter, I'm not sure if it will happen. I mean, just because this is this has kind of been the timeline they've been on. And uh, presumably, you know, this winter, the excuse was the pandemic. I suppose next winter, the excuse could be the collective bargaining agreement and all the uncertainty there. But certainly the hope is that the spending is just around the corner. Yeah. So we'll ask you to close with a win total prediction in a second. But one last big picture question. You mentioned, you know, they aren't where they should be from a payroll perspective. Are they where they should be from a a talent perspective, you know, in terms of the progress of the rebuild? It's been, what, seven years, I think, since the last Tigers playoff team. 
this will be the fifth consecutive losing season and maybe they didn't embark on that rebuild as quickly or as aggressively as they should or could have but once they did do you think they have gone about it in the right way and are they satisfied with where they are on that timeline the state of the farm system you know do they feel like they have enough in-house now that they can envision the next Tigers winning team with some supplementary moves to bring in outside players because you know there's certainly some trades I guess like you look at the Verlander trade and you think well they didn't strike it rich there you know they didn't necessarily get back the blue chipper who would have propelled them along this path but of course they do have a lot of promising prospects as we've touched on in this conversation. Yeah the thing is virtually all of their most promising prospects came through the draft. I mean, they basically yeah. came through being a bad team and getting a high draft pick. Very few of them came from all the numerous trades they've made since 2017 when right. they started by trading J.D. Uh, Martinez and, Ver- and Verlander and Justin Upton. I mean, realistically, I, I guess the best trade they made was kind of an under-the-radar one with the Cubs when they got Jamer Candelario and Isaac Paredes for uh, Justin Wilson and, and Alex Avila, which turns out to be a you know, re- pretty decent trade and could even be a great trade if Candelario and Paredes work out. But you know, by and large, most of their trades have not produced a lot other than saving money. And the consequence being that they became a worse team, which allowed them to get a better draft pick and thus you know, stock their farm system that way. So it's not exactly like if you're MLB commissioner of, you know, I don't know that this is a, a really something you want to spotlight because the the, this is not a, a, I guess, a a rebuild that was done very organically. It was just a bad team that got good draft picks and, and at least to this point appears to have made some pretty decent selections. I think it, it has taken longer than expected in the sense that I think most people would have expected them to be on the cusp of contention, at least at this point, and not more or less where they have been the last several years. I guess it depends on when you start the the rebuild clock but it was probably that summer of 2017 and i just i think if you know sometimes it's just it's striking the lottery sometimes it's it's good evaluation but if you got one or two impact type prospects from some of those trades uh that really are are franchise changing that could have made a huge difference and and they just didn't get that they had to get that through the draft i will say you know i think aj hinch when we talk about player evaluation it's going to be really interesting because there have been a lot of you know, Tigers have had a lot of players who have been adequate on a bad team. And I think to take that next step, you have to kick some of those adequate players to the curve and say, we're going to aggressively upgrade if we want to be, you know, better than a 65 or 70 win team. And that step hasn't taken place yet, but I I think it could be just around the corner and certainly will have to be if they want to compete in 2022. Well, we've come to maybe the least exciting part of the Tiger Season Preview Podcast where we ask you for a win total prediction. So how many games do you see the Tigers winning in 2021? I haven't done my official pick yet, but it was going to be about 70. And I, I thought that was pretty fair. But looking at some of the uh, the projections, that's almost on the wildly optimistic side, <laughs> which is not saying much. But uh, no, I, I think about 70 is realistic because, you know, even last year, you know, they got off to a, a decent start and, you know, as weird as last season was, they were in the quote unquote playoff race until about the 30 game mark of the season before falling out. I mean, I, this is a team that if everything goes right, I think could exceed expectations. And if everything goes wrong, could be, you know, really, really bad. Like the 2018 team was really, really bad. But I, I think 70 is a good, a good uh, barometer. 
Well, actually, if we could ask you more of a a personal question to close here, as people maybe could tell from the fact that you're not butchering the Latin players' names, (laughs) you are bilingual and you actually maintain a Spanish language Twitter account. And we wanted to ask how that came to be, you know, whether this was something you set out to do for the purposes of improving your coverage or if not, how it has shaped or improved your coverage, because this is something that we and a lot of other media members lament that, you know, not speaking the language that a lot of players speak is something that can lead to certain players being overlooked. And that is perhaps less of a problem for you. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. Uh, I hear a lot of people say, "Oh, I'm I'm too old to, to learn a language, or I I didn't take it in school, or I can't start now." I spoke zero words of Spanish when I started covering baseball about five years ago now, and I just it's something I've have literally done every studied every single day for the last five years, and uh, over time went from being a very mediocre Spanish speaker to to one that can you know more comfortably interact with players and do interviews in Spanish and. Uh, you know, monitor media in Venezuela or the Dominican Republic and, and you know, talk to, to reporters in those countries. So it's it's been a great asset, less so in the Zoom era, unfortunately. Uh, but in general, especially this time of year in the pre-COVID era, it was a great time to meet some of the young Latin players uh, that are just coming to spring training for the first time. It was a great way to build relationships in the minor leagues. Uh, and obviously, I'm, I'm it's still a work in progress, and I could probably study 20 years and would not have the dexterity in the language that a native speaker would have but uh but you know i i can i can get along pretty well and uh, it's it's without a doubt it's been an asset all right well people can find evan on twitter at evan woodbury that's one r they can also find him on twitter at soy evan woodbury in spanish and they can find him writing about the tigers at mlive.com slash tigers is where you can find all of the tigers stories there Evan, thank you very much for coming on. All right. Thank you. I appreciate it. Okay. That'll do it for today. Thanks as always for listening. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Nicholas Gleason, Mike Thompson, Colin Ray, Benjamin Penserga, and Joseph Kappel, or possibly Capel. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Meg Cumming via email at podcastfangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins, as always, for his editing assistance. We'll be back with another Team Preview podcast next time. Next up will be the Braves and the Mariners. Talk to you then. Someone please finish what I started. It's good enough. Let me lie in the darkness. I know what I want, what I wanted to say. And the time was wrong